from PRX. Today on Studio 360. And he turned around and he said, listen, I understand. Like a year ago, I was exactly where you are today. When a Lyft driver's unhinged ideas help inspire a movie. All you have to do, just start Googling. I'm telling you, you go deep enough and it is all there. It's irrefutable. You cannot deny it. How flat earthers and other conspiracy theorists inspired writer-director Lynn Shelton's new comedy. Plus... Poison them, drown them, bash them in the head. I just was in this out-of-body experience when I saw Cruella de Vil. Finding your true self in a Disney villain. I don't care how you kill the little beast, but do it! And do it now! I just thought... That, that's what I want to be. That is the life I want to live. Those stories and more are ahead on Studio 360 right after this. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Lynn Shelton is a terrific and prolific director. She's made eight feature films in 13 years, including Hump Day, Touchy Feely, and Your Sister's Sister, starring Emily Blunt and Mark Duplass. Jack! Whoa, whoa! What's going on? What's going on? You fucked my sister! You fucked my sister! Oh my gosh! Oh, look, oh my so god! Sorry. You were here for one night! She's was, a fucking lesbian! It was a total mistake. You should never have known about it. I'm so sorry for something. Lynn Shelton has also directed episodes of some of the best TV shows of the last decade, including Mad Men, The Good Place, and Glow. It was on Glow that Shelton worked with actor, comedian, podcaster Mark Maron, who now stars in her latest film, a comedy called Sword of Trust. Most Lynn Shelton movies have some improvisation, but Sword of Trust is almost entirely unscripted. I haven't worked with improvisation to such an enormous degree, a little bit here and there, but really not an entire film that was really the dialogue is, you know, between 80 and 100 percent improvised since Your Sister, Sister, which was I made in 2010. Um, it came out in 2012. And I've been dying to get back to that process. It's a process she calls an upside down model of filmmaking. In this particular form of making a film, a starting point is an actor. Like Mark Marin for Sort of Trust. And I'll go to them with a character, and a scenario. So in this case, I was driving around the city, and I'm in Los Angeles, and I turn my head, and there's this amazing-looking pawn shop, and it just completely, I see Mark inside this pawn shop in my mind's eye. So you you have his job and the setting and the basics of his character. <laughs> Give the rundown of the story that you ended up with, with sort of trust. Mark plays a pawn shop owner in Birmingham, Alabama, and in walks a couple. How are you, ladies? What do you got? Uh, with an artifact. Jillian Bell and Michaela Watkins come in. They play a, a couple that come in with this old sword. And it's a union sword, which I don't see around here much, mostly Confederate swords. And it is an heirloom that was left to Jillian's character by her grandfather. How about 
400 in cash for this sword today. That's a, no, that's a reasonable that's a offer. Nice, that's a nice first uh, toss. I can see uh, and it comes along with a story. It's a Civil War era heirloom, and it comes along with a story. Okay, what you were looking at? Yes. It's a genuine relic, mm-hmm. a very valuable piece of evidence mm-hmm. that supports the actual truth, which is the South won the war. Okay. The okay. South won the war? That's right. Show them the documentation. And so that's kind of the launch of the film, and then it goes from there. <laughs> so at the heart of this screwball comedy caper is a nutty conspiracy theory about the South winning the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I, I have a special interest in this, uh, nutty conspiracies, because I wrote this book mm-hmm. called Fantasyland, which is a history of Americans' weakness, mm-hmm. defining weakness for the excitingly untrue. Yes. So I'm curious about how you got there to this conspiracy being at the heart of your story for this film. Well, once I came up with this idea that I wanted it, I wanted a film that could star Mark Maron and that I wanted it to be a comedy caper. Oh, and I wanted it to be improvisational. I also wanted it to be relevant. I wanted to create a film that would feel like it was of this moment Uh and that it was saying something and adding to the conversation and pointing things out about what is going on in our society right now. Now, obviously, as you well know, conspiracy theories have always been around, Uh especially in this country. But we seem to be having a a, a sort of a peak moment, I would say, with a conspiracy theorist in chief and thought it would be good territory to – kind of explore. I also wanted to make a film, however, that didn't make you want to slit your wrists after seeing it (laughs) or or just start sobbing incessantly, which is kind of how I get enough of that from real life. You must have uh, done a lot of research and gone into dark places on the internet as you were figuring this out. You know, not really. It wasn't really necessary. (laughs) I mean, I did have folks... Did Oh, yeah, that whole thing was completely made up. The conspiracy yeah. theory that's central to this is completely made up. And I love it when people ask me if, if it's true. And and I just makes me very happy because why not? I mean, it, you know, now it might be. Um, yeah, but it's just so oh, absurd. Meta-alternative reality. You've made up a conspiracy yeah, exactly. theory that isn't even a true crazy <laughs> it's conspiracy It's not even theory. a true conspiracy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, although there are ones in there, there are other conspiracy theories that do exist. And they are in there as well, or one in particular. Right. You've got this character in the movie who is a flat earther. Where did you pick that notion up? I I was in an Uber ride, actually, and it was a very long drive. And he and the the, the driver and I had a very long, totally normal-seeming conversation. Uh. And by the end of this ride, he started to tell me about how the earth was flat. And I literally could not grasp – like my brain couldn't – it just – I just could not understand what he was – saying to me. <laughs> and by the end of this of this ride, I realize he's completely on the up and up. He totally believes in this idea that the earth is flat. And then by the end, he sees the look on, his, on my face. And he, I remember him turning around. He parked in front of my apartment. He turned around and he said, listen, I understand. Like a year ago, I was hmm. exactly where you are today, <laughs> exactly where you are. All you have to do, just start Googling. I'm telling you, just Google it. You go deep enough and it is all there. It's irrefutable. You cannot wow. deny it. 
Uh, yeah, so I wanted to put that in a movie for welcome sure. Welcome to Fantasyland. Um, uh, welcome to Fantasyland. Yeah, exactly. So there are these, you know, bad guy conspiracy theorists who have this mm-hmm. crazy idea about the Civil War. But then you have one of your good guys also oh, believes in a conspiracy theory. Was that a deliberate exactly. thing of, oh, I want to show that this isn't just, this is all Americans yes. are prone to this? Yes, absolutely. I wanted to show that all humans are just apt to be suckers. I think it's a danger for all of us, you know, and it's also something to be vigilant about, you know, not to get rooked into something because it just, for some reason, it rings a little bell in our heads and makes us feel all heady and, and, you know, woozy and happy, you know, to believe in this stupid thing that's not based on anything and to let ourselves get sort of, um, you know, drift into, into this kind of little magical thinking, you know. Right. Um, For whatever reason, whatever the motivation is. But, yeah, I did want to show that it's not just wrong-minded folks who who think of things or people that we think are wrong-minded because they don't have the same beliefs that we do. But, you know, yeah, really, it's anybody. So you had your story. But then I want to go into some detail about your improvisational process of of filmmaking. How does that, that you're doing an improvisationally, affect casting? Did you choose, other than Mark Maron, all the actors – specifically for their improv skills? Absolutely, absolutely. And over the years, I've found that there's a very small sector of actors in the world who are actually really good at that. So I'd been sort of collecting (laughs) um, this and curating a list um, as in my travels as a television director and, you know, meeting uh, other directors and kind of just creating this little list of of people that I wanted secretly, wanted to work with and wanted to ask to... um, who you know if they'd right. be interested in working with me and working in this way, and so every single person in this cast was vetted um, as a highly skilled improvisational actor. So, do you give actors some kind of of script, or is the dialogue entirely off the cuff? I mean, the dialogue in this film, some of it is written. It's it's interesting. I've gone from um, the extreme of making Hump Day, which was a 10-page treatment, I think. There were maybe, you know, there really was no dialogue written at all. Um, Your Sister, Sister was like an 80-page script that we, you know, basically as a safety net, if they wanted to use the lines, they could, but they didn't have to. This was about in between. It was like 45, Uh 50-page script. Some of the scenes were actually pretty well scripted, and we kind of kept to it. And then other scenes were completely improvised, and I really, really heavily leaned on on the character, I'm, I'm sorry, in the actors who were playing the characters right. to come up with the yeah with the dialogue. But they, I was asking them to do a lot of heavy lifting because it was very plot heavy. And so if you listen to the dailies, you'll hear me saying, you know, I'll insert myself and say, oh, that was amazing. Could you just do that one more time and just don't forget to say the little thing that's going to set up the next thing that's going to, you know, <laughs> like it was really probably pretty handsy and annoying. But um, there were so many little plot points that had to be laid down for the next scene and the next scene and the next scene for the whole thing to sort of come together. And they were just so game. So you construct the story. And this this script slash treatment your actors get ahead of time uh, has basic plot points, um, maybe a, bits of dialogue. And, and, and do you give them the, the main characters' backstories? Yeah. A really important part of making an improvised movie at all work is that I spend a lot of time on backstory. I was I co-wrote this film with Mike O'Brien. Mike O'Brien wrote for SNL for several years. He was on it for a year because I'm not somebody who likes to sit in a room and just, you know, lock myself in a room and write alone. It's huh. that's pretty much torture for me. Huh. And I've come to realize over the years that it's nice to have a, somebody else in the room with me, you know, is, and he is, was just 
Is, is that, do you think, I mean, the fact that you don't like to do that, uh, one <laughs> of the things that drove you to make films the way you do? I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. the, even the very first feature I made, I, I realized, oh, art making is all going to be about – because I've been a solo photographer and experimental filmmaker where I did everything myself before mm-hmm. that. And I realized, oh, it's all about relationship now. Like every – I'm never going to make a piece of art alone again. And I would say that when I'm at my best as a filmmaker, it is when I am the curator of the best ideas. So I'm, I'm you know – letting go of my ego as much as I possibly can huh. and letting in as much input as I can. And in a kind of a structured, I mean, creating an invisible container where people feel emotionally safe enough to to contribute. And I'm trying to make everybody feel valued and respected. And, you know, it's all a facade, but no, right. I'm kidding. And then and then I and then I prune out the stuff that's not going to work, right. so, which is why. So the which is why the edit room is the most important right. place, arguably, for this kind of process. You were an editor before you directed as well, right? Yes, yes, indeed. So I started in the theater as an actor, um, yeah. and then it was sort of a long, circuitous route to getting <laughs> long, circuitous film school, alternative film school. Right. And it started as acting, and then went into photography, and then went into editing, and also as I was also making experimental films. But um, yeah, I was an editor before, and I, I don't, I, I don't think I could work in this way if I hadn't had that experience. So to get an even closer, better feel, perhaps for your process, I want you to walk us through this one very long scene in the middle of the movie. The four main characters are all riding in the back of a van. Where are we in the story and where are they going and what are they doing? There's two pairs that are kind of like dueling pairs in a way, two couples. It's the the couple that I described, Jillian Bell and Michaela Watkins, who walk into this pawn shop with a sword to sell and they try and pull a, you know, kind of a lie over on, on the pawn shop owner. And then the, the the other pair who are bonded, you know, and, and sort of they sort of present themselves as a unit in this case, are Mark Maron's character, um, who's the pawn shop owner, Mel, and his uh, employee, played by John Bass, named Nathaniel. And there's one person on each side who are particularly suspicious right. and pessimistic right. and skeptical. And they began by lying are, to each other. I mean, that's how they met. Yes, and they begin by lying each, with each other, and so then they have to. They form a team, a partnership, right. because they are they want to get they want to sell the sword right. to these um, scary like a, people, like a lot of and criminals so, do in real life. Yeah, exactly. So they have to get into cahoots with each other, even though they don't trust each other. And it was fascinating to me is that it was the most improvised part of the movie, and so it was really open ended, and I didn't really know what this was going to be. I knew I wanted there to be a long vehicle ride. At first, it might have be a car, but I ended up putting them all in the back of the van. You want to have $40,000? Get in the van. It's a windowless van. They're right. in the back. They're just stuck in this box, sort of this hot box. Oh, I don't have a seatbelt. Honey, nobody's got it's a seatbelt. Oh. No one's got seatbelts. These are the tires. It, this is a tire? Yeah, the tires on. Okay, oh. here we go. They don't know what's going to happen to them. There's car. It's carpeted. It's like this weird, which makes it scarier. Exactly, which makes it more like they're going to kill us. Kind of feeling. They don't know where they're being taken because they're not being told, and it and they may be going to their doom. And so, because of they're all vulnerable because of that. Well, at least it's padded. So no one can hear you scream. This entire scene in the script, I believe it says, they get to know each other in the back of the van. And that was it? And what's remarkable is that it became the heart of the movie. So, um, how did the two of you meet? So I got together with Michaela and Jillian. We created ideas about what 
who these people were, what they were to each other, how they met. We met at a restaurant. Her restaurant, actually. It's not my restaurant. Well, I call it her restaurant. It's not. I came in because I needed a job, Mm -hmm. desperately. And then, well, she gave me a a simple task, and she thought I could handle it. (laughs) Jillian's character is a very specific kind of character. She's a little bit softer and sweeter. Um, Michaela's character is much harder and more angry. But, uh, yeah, she had to fire me. But So then you, you yelled at me, and I cried. And... But then you you came out after me. Mm-hmm. You came out after me. You followed me out and you said so aggressively, do you, uh, you want to see live music? <laughs> I sort of laid that out and then they just dove in and they came up with all these things that – all these backstory details that fit with that, you know, idea. So what's the big plan with the cash? And then all these great little embellishments like – <laughs> Jillian's character has this whole dream of what they're going to use the cash for. And part of it was that they want to have a kid, but another part of it was that she has this other idea about this dream that she's always wanted to, um, well, she'll say it. Well, it's uh, it's to own, manage, and create a successful escape room. Oh, wow. Wait, what's an escape room? The thing that's so beautiful about working in this way is that Mark had never heard, in real life, had never heard of an escape room. So his character, Mel, could also have never heard of an escape room. It's like, what is that? The room. Who the yeah. fuck needs that in her life? With that every that's year. what I was saying. Because yeah. I was thinking that is life. Yeah. No, at first she was not editing this scene, we probably spent more time editing this scene than any other scene because... It was always finding this balance between how much time are we going to spend with them back there and how much funny are we going to leave in that's just purely funny. You know, intimacy is shared vulnerability. And if you are able to open yourself up to somebody in that way and be vulnerable, then there's automatically a little bit of trust that gets built, you know. So it was kind of this was like the seeds of these people opening up to each other and building trust. And then you just burn and turn. People just go through that thing and they either do a oh, good job or they don't. Like, and, the, and if they win, you know what they get? Huh. Tickets to another escape room. The money makes its own money. It's crazy. I mean, listen, the first cut of this film, which ended up being 88 minutes long, less than an hour and a half, was two and a half hours long. And this was solid. Like, this was really all good material for two and a half hours. So cutting down to 88 minutes was something I never thought was even possible. But it ended up just being to, in service of the film overall, you know. And, and some of the stuff that we ended up letting go of was – it was so excruciatingly painful. And we just had to tell ourselves, well, there have to be outtakes at some point because people have to see the gold. Some of it just comedic, but a lot of it really heartbreaking and beautiful. You shot this in two, two weeks or less. How do those two things interact, the shortness of the time frame and that style of shooting? I think it's harder. I honestly do because it was the improvisation. We're trying to actually create scenes – in the moment and <laughs> figure out what they are, at least when you have the script written, <laughs> you know, you can do a lot of planning in advance and figure out, you know, at least you know what you have to get in the can, as they say, you know. But in this case, it was right. really like, okay, I think we have everything we need. Let's try that thing again and just let's do a pickup and make sure that we have this one little detail. But I think we're good, you know, and you're just sort of guessing as you go along. I mean, it really, it was incredibly anxiety-inducing, but again, really exciting, too. There's just nothing like it. So now, in addition to going out and talking about uh, sort of trust, you are in the middle of directing 
like half the episodes of a forthcoming miniseries, Little Fires Everywhere, which is an adaptation of the um, Celeste Ng novel starring Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington. You direct uh, episodic TV regularly, but was it a special pleasure after making this super improvised film to suddenly be back uh, in the structure of a scripted project, knowing every morning exactly what you've got to shoot? <laughs> definitely. It's, <laughs> it, it definitely is a relief, you know, after the, as, as wonderful and exciting and dynamic and, and sort of invigorating as it is to work um, uh, in, an imp- in an improvisatory way, to create dialogue whole cloth from improvisation, you know, or I don't know, 95% anyway, um, it is such a relief to have beautifully written, pre-written words, you know, <laughs> on a page. And I have to say that there are moments when, and entire scenes where we've really discovered things even within this particular structure that's much more traditional, you know, in terms of having a script that's written will loosen it up, you know, and one of the actors will say, let's let's do a version where we're just loosening it up and we're just trying to get everybody sort of relaxed and and we'll make amazing discoveries that I'm sure some of which will end up, you know, dialogue-wise that'll end up in the final version as well. So, and I've done that a lot where I will use a little bit of improvisation or ad-libbing here or there, you know, and even when it's a pre-written script. And it's nice to be able to feel comfortable in both, you know, realms. Lynn Shelton, this has been a total delight for me. Thank you very much for coming here. Thank you, Kurt. Sort of Trust is opening in theaters and will be streaming into your home starting July 19th. Coming up... Now what have we here? So they thought they could outwit Cruella. <laughs> Once Cruella entered, she became my true love. When a cartoon character who's supposed to scare and repel you does the opposite. She was what I was yearning for, what I was reaching for, and I didn't even know it. The villain from 101 Dalmatians changes everything. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Here at Studio 360, we are always on the lookout for stories of how an encounter with a work of art or culture transformed somebody's outlook or changed the course of their life. It's all for a series we call Aha Moments. For Michael Bowen, who grew up in a small town in upstate New York in the 70s and 80s, his aha moment came early in life. So it's 1985. I am in fourth grade in my school, and there's a girl who I like. Her name is Shannon, and she had braids and pigtails, and she played the flute. I, I thought she was fantastic, and I wanted to take her out on a date. And I asked her out for Valentine's Day to go see 101 Dalmatians at our town movie theater, and she agreed. And so I got all dressed up, and I wore, like, a red shirt and a white, I think it was probably a clip-on tie, and I, my aunt had sewed little hearts on it, little felt hearts. And my mom drove me up to Shannon's house, and we we're going to go on this date, and I go, and there's Shannon, and then... Jeremiah, who's this kid from class who's like the popular kid, and he was from Alaska, so he's really, you know, exotic, and he played the saxophone. He was there, and I I didn't understand. I thought, oh, and she goes, oh, he's going to come with us. And I said, oh, okay, that's great. So I guess I asked my date on a date, 
and she brought her date. <laughs> Walt Disney Pictures presents... And we went to the movie, and I got all this candy, and I gave it to Shannon. The Black Cauldron. And we're watching the previews. Escape into a world of darkness. And he's eating the candy. And I was getting very panicked, and I thought, no, no, this is my date. I have to, I have to do something. And so I, at one point, I grabbed her hand really tightly, and I held it. And I said, my, your skin is so soft, and what beautiful nail lacquer you have. I just remember her trying so hard to pull her hand away, and every time she pulled her hand away, I would pull it closer. Because I thought, this is what you did, this is what adults did in the movies. They held hands, they talked about how beautiful their skin was, and their nail lacquer. And then the movie started. It starts with this jazzy score. And the opening is all these spots, and it's kind of plink-plunking with the jazz music. There's these Dalmatians, Pongo and Perdita. Darling, are you all right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, of course, dear. And the Dalmatians are going to have puppies. And then... Oh, Pongo. There's this build-up. It's her. It's that devil woman. And then you see her car, and it's this huge, fanciful, like, limousine. And it comes careening around the corner of these streets of London. Must be Cruella, your dearly devoted old schoolmate. And you see her shadow come through a plate glass window, and it's enormous. And then the door blasts open. Anita, darling! And this is the moment where my world exploded in walks Cruella de Vil. How are you? Miserable, darling, as usual. Perfectly wretched. She is enormous. She's so tall, and she's elegant, and she has black and white hair, and she's in this huge, enormous fur coat. No time for games. Where are the little brutes? And her voice is like an ashtray and gin and in sophistication, and she Hers. Uh, It's all marvelous. And she just breezes into the room. For heaven's sakes, where are they? Who, Cruella? I don't... The puppies, the puppies. She has an enormous cigarette holder, and she has jeweled fingers and these enormous long evening gloves that are red that matches the interior of the coat and that matches the shoes. She puts a cigarette out in a cupcake. Isn't that a new fur coat? My only true love, darling. I live for furs. I worship furs. I I just I just was in this outer body experience when I saw Cruella Deville, and I just thought, that that's what I want to be. That is the life I want to live. Once Cruella entered, she became my true love. She was what I was yearning for, what I was reaching for, and I didn't even know it. I don't remember what happened after the date. Like, there was before, and then there was after. And I became so obsessed with her that I convinced my mother that she should always buy pretzel rods, long ones, so I could pretend that I was Cruella DeVille smoking uh, pretzel rod cigarettes. And a lot of times when no one was home, I'd wear the afghan my grandmother made as a fur coat, and I would call people darling, and I would, marvelous. I just wanted to be that. I wanted to be this cadaverous 
cartoon character who was beyond wonder and amazement, and she was fantastic. And I got the record, and it had the Cruella DeVille song on it, and I remember playing it over and over and over again and kind of lip-syncing. Cruella DeVille. Cruella DeVille, Cruella DeVille, if she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. To see her is to get a sudden chill. Oh, Roger, Cruella, Cruella DeVille, do I have to continue or is that plenty? She's like a spider waiting for the kill. Look out for Cruella DeVille. You know, evil is so, so judgmental. She is not evil. Poison them, drown them, bash them in the head. I mean, I mean look, yes, I mean, <laughs> she was going to kill puppies to make a coat. I don't care how you kill the little beast, but do it! And do it now! But I don't want to think of her as evil. I want to think of her as an outsider. An outsider driven by her desire for beautiful things, for delicious food for black and white mullets. I mean, it is fantastic what she does if you stop and think about it. I'm through with all of you. I'll get even. Just wait. You'll be sorry, you fools. You, you idiots. Of course, there's such a connection between Cruella's outsiderness and and what I was experiencing because being gay and growing up kind of isolated, you know, I was I was um, picked on in school. I was uh, bullied, and I was one time knocked uh, unconscious in my middle school by someone with a history book. And I thought I was never going to fit into where I come from, and I was never going to fit into with my family. Not that they don't love me, but they just don't understand me. So I had to find a way to get what I want and be who I was, and that's. Completely Cruella. Now, what have we here? So they thought they could outwit Cruella. (laughs) She does what she wants and gets what she wants and lives the life that she wants. She sits in bed. She makes phone calls. She reads trashy magazines. She eats chocolate. She chain smokes. And she survives. All the other Disney villains up to this point that I've seen die. All of them. Cruella does not. She crashes her car. That's that's all. That's all. She probably had insurance. She never gets put in jail. She's just going to go and do what she does next. And it was so exciting to to see this. <laughs> it's so funny to like talk about it and realize it now because it is so. I don't know. I didn't realize how deep this this kind of penetrated into who and what I am. My name is Bertha Mason. I am the house from of the Heartland, and I am just so excited to be here. You know that somehow led me to being a Midwestern pie-baking drag queen. I am from Gopher Prairie, Minnesota. I started doing my character Bertha Mason in 1997. It is like living in a Norman Rockwell painting, except we have a target and a crystal meth problem. <laughs> and it was so fantastic and so wonderful because I felt so free and comfortable, and I didn't, at the same time, I didn't feel like I had to hide. When I finally became Bertha and, uh, you know, put on the makeup and the hair and the wig, this one piece fell into place and it was just like a light came on. And I thought, oh, oh, this is where it started. Oh, it started here. It started with Cruella. It started all those years back. 
you know, Cruella lives inside of me. I think over the time since first seeing Cruella, what has happened is that I have fully embraced the strength and power of that character. And I try to live my life with that fullness. I love to call people darling. And I think I move through life as if I'm always Cruella entering a room. I don't slink in, I arrive. It's a way of self-confidence that you know that I am here and I belong. And I may be seen as being evil or the other or not welcome, but I will somehow survive and thrive. The world was such a wholesome place until Cruella, Cruella de Vil. <laughs> Michael Bowen, a.k.a. Bertha Mason, is a performer and pastry chef in New York City. To see where you can catch his drag shows, check out bakingwithbertha.com. Studio 360's Evan Chong produced our story. Is there some animated film or novella or symphony or video game or poster that actually changed your life? If so, please tell us about it in an email or voice memo to incoming at studio360.org. Coming up. I find that her work is almost like totemic in a way. Like if you think about something like Stonehenge. Trying to make sense of a strange giant sculpture passed by thousands of people every day. It just feels like, you know, you're sort of left to make sense of what it means. The mysterious art of Ursula von Riddingsvard. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Here we are in the middle of downtown Brooklyn uh, as an evening show is about to begin at the Barclays Center, the great concert and basketball venue. But right outside in front is this enormous public sculpture. The sculpture is called Ona. It is by the artist Ursula von Riddingsvard. It is a dark brown with cuts and jagged pieces cleaved and cut into it. It must be 19 or 20 feet tall. How to describe it? What does it look like? Like a Doritos chip. The last part of a lightning bolt. Maybe a meter or something that dropped. (laughs) Is it supposed to look like something? It looks like a branch. (laughs) I think it looks modern but still ancient. It could be from ten thousands of years ago and it could also be part of a science fiction movie. Seeing the sculpture, I agreed with all of those random people. And I wanted to find out more about the sculpture and the artist who made it. So did Studio 360's Zoe Saunders. That sculpture by Ursula von Riddingsvard at the Barclays Center doesn't just perplex bystanders. Even art critic Gillian Steinhauer isn't sure what to make of it. The work at the Barclays, um, it sort of looks like someone has cut some chunks out of like a cliff or a rock face and like put them together in this sort of tall, sort of towering form. They remind me sometimes of like tornado forms. Um, in the way that they're large on top and, and often like sort of spiral slash crumple down to the bottom. It's almost like a warped giant ice cream cone in terms of its shape. You would sort of walk by it and be like, huh. And then you sort of do a double take and you're like, wait, what is this weird like tornado ice cream cone form doing in this plaza like in front of Barclays Center? And that makes you want to sort of stop and look at it again and get closer to it. 
The work keeps you guessing, but also draws you in. I find that her work is almost like totemic in a way. It doesn't feel like religious in any way. There's just this suggestion of like ritual in her work. Um, Like if you think about something like Stonehenge, I feel like there's echoes of that. And that's the thing about places like Stonehenge. You see these great big stones that somehow somebody assembled thousands of years ago before pulleys or wheels. And they clearly meant something important. But what? So you stand there in awe of it, and you try to figure out who made this, and how, and why, with not many clues to go on. And so they sort of evoke something ancient and something ritualistic and something that maybe you're not privy to, but you know a person was there. And I think that's where they get some of their power. It just feels like, you know, you're looking at the remnants of some process, and you're sort of left to make sense of what it means. We may never fully understand the mysteries of Stonehenge, but the person who made this mysterious sculpture is just a few subway stops away. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Ursula von Riddingsbard's studio is right here in Brooklyn. So I went to check it out. Fair warning, lots of noisy saws and drills. Many people think I run at it with a chainsaw and just, you know, hit it up. But it's not true. Her studio may be in Brooklyn, but Ursula is no Brooklyn native. She was born to Polish and Ukrainian parents during the Second World War and spent the first few years of her life in Nazi labor camps. And then after the war, in Polish refugee camps, until her family was able to emigrate to Connecticut in 1959. It's so, so detail-oriented. Every single fraction of an inch gets attention. It's very, very time-consuming. So how does she do it? Her sculptures start out simply enough. First, she lines up a row of 4 by 4 wooden beams. Picture them as half a dozen sticks of butter, lying flush side by side to form a square. Then she takes a pencil and draws an outline on the boards, that will become the sculpture's base. So it's very important that I mark all of these things. I mark this with a pencil. I mark this on all four sides of my board so that the cutters, they know exactly what to cut. But they all know what this drawing would mean, what needs to be cut and what doesn't need to be cut. Um, and I'm going to bring this, and I'm going to have Ted cut it so that you can see what happens with these lines and what comes out. One thing you might have guessed from the sheer size of her work is that she doesn't make these sculptures alone. She has a whole team of studio assistants. Most people don't notice that the marks are different. Ted Springer has been working with Ursula for almost 20 years. He lives most of the year in Tucson, Arizona, but flies to New York to help out with the cutting. Each cutter has a different handwriting, a different mark. As the cutters, we all know, oh, that's me, or that's Reuben, or that's Brent, or that's Morgan. And, you know, a lot of us that work here can pick out who cut what in the pieces. And look at the fidelity he has to the lines, and all of the lines on all four sides are there. He pays attention to them, and he cuts. Since they're dealing with wood boards, not really sticks of butter, they need to use some serious power tools for the cutting. 
It's a Porter Cable seven and a quarter inch um, circular saw that, uh, I mean, largely it's used in construction fields for cutting two by fours, plywood. That tool is only meant to be used with straight lines. And that's all we have is straight lines. Every time he cuts into it, it's a straight line. Once Ted cuts the beam according to Ursula's line drawing, he tosses it back to Ursula, who then puts it back where it belongs, in our original grid of the sticks of butter. Each one of them is being cut individually before it's incorporated into the hole. The cutting for Ursula, each one seems like a little mini sculpture almost. I mean, and, and there's thousands and thousands of these boards and these pieces in each sculpture. And the process of making each one of those is, is making a whole bunch of individual 3D objects and that then get all you know, put into one massive object. She'll draw on it, comes to me, I cut it, it goes back to her, and then she traces off of that onto her next board and then starts new lines in a different direction. We're being a little more polite now, but usually we like throw the boards to the cutter and they throw it back and we screw it. Morgan Daly is another of Ursula's studio assistants. And so it's sort of this like dance that happens back and forth all day. Morgan is an artist herself who first fell in love with Ursula's work when she wrote a paper about it back in art school. When she graduated six years ago, she knew she wanted to get a job here. Um, so it's layer by layer. We build up and screw it and, until the form's totally complete. She's screwing the, uh, it's an actually four, four and a half high screw that she's screwing into the cedar log, or it's not a log, cedar And that's what we do first when we build it first, because this way we can take it apart anytime we want and, and so on. We can, I can change my mind, <clears throat> and it ends up being glued. So the screws is an intermediary that's step? That's right, that's right. They take the wooden beam that Ted just cut and put it back where it belongs in the larger grid and then screw it into place. Then they stack a new layer of 4x4s on top of that, where Ursula draws another outline. And then they continue the process, layer upon layer, until it's 10 or 15 or sometimes 20 feet high. A single sculpture can have dozens of these layers. And every layer has to connect to the one on top of and beneath it. So if that second board in the row is sticking out at like a 60-degree angle, then the one on top of it in the next layer will have to be cut to match. The final piece might look like a craggy cliff face or tree trunk, but the way the lumber is arranged in a neat stack means that there's still this grid structure at its core. There's a kind of flirtation that happens with the grid and the organic folds that actually fold into this grid. So this creates not only the flirtation, but it also creates a tension because we have two things going on, something that's very, very organic, uh, and then the other thing is very strictly linear and, and grid-like. It's like painting a landscape on a piece of graph paper. The grid is mostly obscured by the trees and the mountains and the blue sky. But if you decided to just leave the puffy clouds unpainted, you'd see the graph paper clearly. In Ursula's sculptures, it's the flat surfaces that really do look like graph paper, 
while on the craggier surfaces, you barely notice the individual boards. Again, art critic Jillian Steinhauer. So you get these very clean lines, straight lines of divisions between the blocks of cedar versus the sort of jagged places where the wood has been carved away. So now we know how Ursula makes her sculptures, but what are we supposed to make of them? And here's where the artist would prefer to be like Stonehenge, silent and mysterious. Knowing her biography, you can see that there are things that are evocative. Lots of critics have tried to make sense of her art by tying it back to her biography, her traumatic childhood in Nazi-occupied Poland. Like, she grew up in these refugee camps and slept in these, you know, wood barracks, and there were these, like, wooden structures everywhere. And so it's hard not to look at the art and kind of see elements of that. Um, And yeah, because the forms can be very foreboding and can be, like, kind of sinister. So then there's associations with fascism and her childhood in that sense. It's a tempting interpretation, but Ursula dismisses it. Because honestly, I don't want to be thought of that the only place that I've ever used is the camps, you know, as something that I could start with. I don't even, I don't think about, I never think about the camps, but, you know, I'm sure that they're a part of who I am, but I never think about them ever when I make my work. I don't. We want it to be about trauma and her early life, but she says no. She doesn't like to tie her work like too much back to her biography or her childhood, which makes sense because that's how women get pigeonholed. She just seems very resistant to explaining her work very much anyway. She just seems to want to leave space open for the viewer to have their own experience and interpretation. And again, that element of mystery, right? It's like they're both very relatable and also very mysterious. To add to the mystery, Ursula gives her sculptures these enigmatic titles that don't tell you a whole lot. Ona. Crypta, Chos, Droga. Because that way I can hide more, you know, I can hide whatever might be the meaning of the work. And people look to titles for meaning. And with me, it never works that way. Many of the titles are in Polish, her mother tongue. But the Polish is that not that many people are going to look up what that means. This means it leaves them free to then just see it because I don't want a number, you know, 23, you know, I don't want to name something untitled or I don't want to give them a number. Like I hate, I would hate that. I love that there's so many associations and it's evocative enough to give you the associations. Like with this, it calls up so much, but you can never pin it down. And that's a really strong quality, I think, for art because it makes the process of viewing it very personal. Why do I make art? Because there's a constant hope inside of me that this process will heal me, my family, and the world. This is from her personal manifesto, which she wrote for her solo show in Washington, D.C. at the National Museum for Women in the Arts. Because I like embroidering around my long-ago Polish fantasies. Because I can reach into the future with my work. And also because I want to get answers to questions for which I know there are no answers. Artists like Ursula von Riddingsvard construct pieces. And from their work, we try to construct meaning. But like Ursula says, maybe there are no answers. 
Back at the studio, at the end of the day, it's just the end of the day. Everyone's unplugging their saws and heading home to their presumably quieter apartments. Okay, I'll see you in the morning, right? Okay. Ursula's probably one of the most gracious people I've ever met. Courtney Childress is Ursula's office manager. She's so grateful for all of our time and energy. It's really beautiful. It like almost makes me want to cry a little bit. We all got to go to the the opening at the National Museum of Women in the Arts, and uh, she brought us down, and we went to the opening, and it was amazing, and the show looked great, and she got up and gave a speech and didn't say one word about herself, aside from, I'm so grateful for this person and that person and everything that they do to make sure that I can make the work. I've worked with a lot of people, and that's not how, that's not how it normally goes. That story was produced by Studio 360's Zoe Saunders. And if you're going to be in Washington, D.C. this month, that exhibit of Ursula von Riddingsvard's work will be up at the National Museum of Women in the Arts until the end of the month. That's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team consists of Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalves, Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian, Morgan Flannery, and I am Kurt Anderson. Peak totally believes in this idea that the Earth is flat. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. She showed me that there was a way to feel pain and to transform it into art. The brilliance and troubles of Billie Holiday. You don't have to know anything about her life to feel the kind of pain and tragedy that embodies her music. Remembering Billie Holiday's Lady Sings the Blues, next time on Studio 360. Good morning, honey, you old gloomy sight.